Okay, so Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. So uh, today, this is an introduction and instruction. And when I say introduction, um, I mean we're going to look at Luke's introduction to this letter that he wrote. And then we're going to hopefully get into the instruction uh, that Jesus Christ gave the disciples as he was getting ready to depart. And so we're going to try to, to, to cover that much today. I don't, you know, there's a lot of setup involved when you start a new book. And so I want to make sure that I do that right and we have a, a clear understanding. I'm not going to teach this course, just so you know. I'm not going to teach this like a course, I'm sorry, like an LFBI course. Uh, there's a lot to be said about the Acts of the Apostles. Um, and so, but I'm going, to, I'm going to try to teach it in such a way that uh, is inspirational, okay, but then also provides you with insight and principles as we go. Okay, so there's not going to be a whole lot of uh, uh, detail giving here on the front end. We're going to kind of sparse that out, all right? The thing that you need to know first of all is that the Acts of the Apostles is a narrative. It's a story. Okay, that's the very first thing that you need to know. It's a story about the lives of the Apostles just after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so it's a story. And it's, you know, we refer to it as the Acts, um, but, you know, that's, that's probably a little bit dangerous, all right? We need to make sure that we understand that this is the Acts of the Apostles. This is a narrative about a specific group of people, all right, in a specific time period, all right? So we have to understand that. And in this story, just like any story, there are moments of great anticipation and foreshadowing, right? Uh, it has moments of excitement and exhilaration. And it has moments of great sadness and great loss, just like any good story does. And so as we see things unfold, we'll see things building on themselves. And, and the story is going to happen in such a way where we're going to see, I mean, man, like one of the saddest things that I can think of in the story is, is the stoning of Stephen. It's just such a, a heartbreaking moment. But then what happens immediately after that is so exciting and amazing. And, and God kind of flips the script and we see him do something so amazing uh, that it becomes very exciting and exhilarating. And so we're going to see all these ups and downs, just like in any story. Okay, But this is a story about the apostles. And so we see a group here of ragtag individuals. You know, uh, the folks that we, we saw that we're familiar with from the Gospels. We see these men uh, who are absolutely clueless. As clueless as they were uh, really at the beginning when they first met Jesus Christ, after his resurrection... It's funny, it's like they're clueless all over it. It's like everything that they were taught, they forgot. And these, this group of ragtags um, goes about changing the entire world with the gospel. He, he uses this small group of individuals. Um, obviously, we're going to see, all, I don't, I don't want to confuse you, but we're going to see the 11 that are left, plus, plus the disciples that have been added to them, go and do just absolutely crazy stuff. And, and through them, we'll see God change the entire world. We'll discover, this is super important for you to understand, all right? So there are going to be things for you to write down here. But we're going to discover that the secret to the acts, the secret to this moment in time, was not the supernatural gifts, which is what people so often focus their attention on in acts, right? The secret was not the supernatural gifts, but it was... Or even their keen intelligence. We see some very intelligent people in this story. We see Paul, even the writer, 
Luke, who was there and present with the disciples, is an incredibly intellectual and smart man. All right? What we see is that the secret is absolute surrender, which we've been talking about a lot lately. The secret to what happens in this story and how God changes the entire world and turns the world upside down, it can only be explained by their absolute surrender to Jesus Christ. They're yielding, right? And so the Acts of the Apostles will teach us how to surrender. All right, so if we're talking about why we're studying the Acts, uh, the Acts of the Apostles are going to teach us how to surrender to God. All right, so if you're thinking to yourself right now, you could be praying this. You could be praying, God, please allow this next five years. It took us almost two years to get through Romans. Acts is almost twice the size. So, right? No, Lord, please, uh, in this time that we're going to spend studying the Acts, please, God, will you show me what it means to surrender the way I see your disciples in this story? Okay, now, here's the other thing about the Acts. The Acts is absolutely the most misunderstood or misapplied book in our New Testament. So knowing that the, the Acts is a narrative from church history, we have to consider, we have to ask ourselves, that how does this ancient historical record apply to us as contemporary believers? We have to ask that question. You know, over the last 2,000 years, no book has been more misapplied and misunderstood than the book that we call the Acts of the Apostles. Because Acts has been so misunderstood, pockets of false teaching have popped up over and over again throughout moments of church history, over and over again. And the abuse of Acts early on in the church prompted what we refer to as mysticism. Early on in the church, in that first century, the century following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have people that are even just early, early on adopting mystic approach to their Christianity. And what I mean by that is that mysticism is the pursuit of hidden truths. And what they're looking for is extra-biblical revelation in their Christianity. And, and today, it hasn't changed a whole lot. Okay, In the last 100 years, there's been a, uh, a resurgence of this type of thinking. And we see Christians who are pursuing hidden knowledge, and they're, and they're doing it um, through contemplative meditation, right? Looking for truth outside of the scriptures. Doing so through contemplative med meditation and even the adoption of divination in the church. Conjuring up spirits that we misperceive. We misperceive as being godly. We see people uh, misapply acts and they end up chasing experience, spiritual experiences, the pursuit of experience. And you know what? Um, they use those experiences. We call it continua continuationalism, right? When you pursue experience and the, and the, the, um, the adoption of spiritual gifts, like prophetic gifts, as a way of replacing what we know to be complete in the Word of God. 
And we live in a world where just like the problems that they had in the first century, we still have those same problems and people are misapplying with uh, the, the, the book of Acts even today in the church. And we're going to try to address a lot of that stuff. Address a lot of the misunderstandings that people have about Acts. So our study in Acts is absolutely going to provide us with insight to better understand the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation and how its truth impact us as the contemporary church in 2018. It will also clear up any misconceptions you have about what is expected from a New Testament church or a Christian and it will make it clear to us what our true mission is and how we're supposed to achieve it. Does this make sense to you? Okay. All right. So the Acts of the Apostles will teach us good doctrine and a proper perspective on the church age. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that a lot. Again, that, st- that kind of content will be sprinkled throughout the story. Now third, and this is the one I want to focus on a little bit more. Acts is a book of transition. All right? And, and by understanding this, it will shed light on our previous point. All right? But, but Acts is a book of transition. With that in mind, it's important to know that, that transition takes place over and over again in the book of Acts. We see it in many different ways. We see transition from an Old Testament uh, Jewish economy shift into a New Testament Christian economy. We see, we see the, the Mosaic and Abrahamic laws that we see them begin to cease. We see those laws begin to pass. And things, certain principles and ideas that were previously held to, we see those things begin to change. And that happens here in Acts. We see a transition from the center of the church being in Jerusalem. Early on in Acts, what we'll see is that the center of the church is in Jerusalem. That God's focus and attention is still wholly on the church in Jerusalem. Very similar, his focus was on the Jews in the Old Testament. Early on in Acts, what we're going to see is that his focus is still on the Jewish people, but throughout the book we see a transition away from that to a Gentile church and a focus in Rome as as the center of the church. Alright, so we'll see a transition take place there. We'll see a uh, transition from a Jewish-led, Peter-centered church to a Gentile-led church with Paul at the center of our story. So early on we're going to see Peter's leading the charge. We see Peter doing all the preaching and teaching. We see people following Peter in a Jewish context. And what we'll see is the story goes along. That's going to transition away from a Jewish focus and towards a Pauline focus. You with me? Oh, man, you guys are already bored. (laughs) Maybe I'm not doing a good job of explaining myself. Okay. Now, we see also a transition from, this is important to understand, John the Baptist's call to repentance through baptism Okay, which was focused primarily on the Jews. I don't know, and I know some of you, some of this is going to sound a little bit foreign to you. I'm going to, I promise I'm going to explain all of this. Okay? But what we see early on, if you look at the Gospels, you see John the Baptist, what's he doing? He's baptizing people, calling them to repentance in anticipation of the coming Messiah. Right? He, he's saying, look, The Messiah is coming and we need to be prepared. And there was a salvation that came through 
the baptism of John. Now we're going to see, what we're going to see is a transition taking place away from that very Jewish-centered uh, uh, repentance through baptism, all right, to a more open, Holy Spirit-focused baptism. That's a call to all mankind to repent. It's a call to every person, whether Jew or Gentile, to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and be baptized into the Holy Spirit. All right, and we're going to clear up any confusion about what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, too. We're going to cover that, all right? Now, understanding the transitions in the book of Acts is crucial to the furtherance of the gospel. We have to get this. Now, for a moment, we just got done doing Romans, right? We just got finished teaching and preaching and learning about, about Romans. Now, can you imagine for a moment a Bible that goes from John to Romans? Without this transitional book, we would be in the dark. How did we get to a Jewish-focused Messiah, to a place where we're, in, where we're in Rome? What just happened here? And my point to you is this, is that transitions are crucial. We need Acts to, to reveal to us how that transition took place. And if we neglect to understand Acts, or we misapply it, it will leave us in the dark as it concerns the rest of the Bible. It's a pivot point. Now, this is a ministry of transition. I don't know if you knew that. If we can get into some application here for a moment. Our, our ministry, Kaya, is basically and primarily comprised of people who are just in transition. And we, above all people, should know how crucial transition is. What are all the different types of transition that we see in this ministry? We see people who are going from high school to college. Now, just, for some of you, that's like you're right on the threshold of that. You're just graduated, and you're getting ready for your first semester of college. And some of you can just remember that. Guys, I, my freshman year of college was not good. <laughs> it was not good. High school had been so easy. All right? And when I got to college, the, the, the rigor it was, it had changed a little bit. And that first semester was full of the more C's than I had through the rest of college. Right? I, I made some improvements. But there was a moment of transition, a moment where things were hard, a moment where I had to adapt and I had to learn. Right? There's a lot of you who are moving from college into professional life. And you're looking for your first job, your first career, your first move. Uh, you're trying to get out of, out of the college mindset and into the adulting, right? And that can be really difficult. Can anybody attest to that? You're in that place right now, right? Sarah just got her first job, so she's feeling real confident. Right? <laughs> you wait for that first week. So she's going to be a teacher, right? I've been praying for more teachers. We need lots of teachers to spread the gospel. Um, Man, youth to adulthood. Some of you are 28 and you still feel like you're 18. In your mind, you're functioning and you're living every day, right? On a healthy diet of Doritos and Taco Bell. Like if you're in this room and you can say that you love the, the what is it, the Taco Locos? What is that called? The one that's the Doritos, Doritos Locos. Ta- that's a mouthful. Yeah, if you like those, I don't care how old you are, in your heart and mind, you're still 18. <laughs> right? 
Those are not good for you. But there's a lot of you who are, who are just figuring out what it means to be an adult. Man, this is a big one for a lot of you. You're transitioning from your native land, wherever that might be in the world, okay? Maybe somewhere else in the United States or from another country. And you're transitioning and figuring out what it means to live in Kansas City and live like an American and live like a Midwesterner, right? <laughs> and that could be painful. And there's, cult there's cultural differences and there's, there's um, just, you know, and you're working through that. You're figuring out what that means. Man, singleness to marriage. We've had a lot of people get married over the last year or two. And you're trying to figure out what it means to live in a marriage relationship, to die to yourself. That requires a lot of transition. And, uh, and man, that's probably the toughest one. Right? Um, singleness to marriage, that's, there's a lot of change. Right? There's a lot of change that takes place there. And then marriage to parenting. Right? We've got, we've got brand new parents in this ministry. And they're figuring out what it means to, to have kids. We've, we have a beautiful cross-section in here. And every one of you, this ministry needs you. This ministry needs every type of person that's, that's right here. And we're all learning from each other. Okay? But my point to you is this, is that transition is beautiful and it's crucial. But you know what? We fail at transition a lot. See, with transition comes great risk and great reward. There could be unhealthy transitions. That's a real thing. You can have an unhealthy transition. What does that mean? Well, transition can be awkward. Does anybody remember puberty? Yeah. That was pretty awkward, wasn't it? Um, Eva makes fun of me when she gets hold of like photos of me in like seventh or eighth grade. It comes with quite a bit of ridicule. I think, I mean, I was as tall as I am now, but I think I weighed like 110 pounds. I, I, yeah, I was pretty skinny. And I, I think, I don't think I was in braces anymore. I hope not. Maybe in seventh grade, I don't remember. But it's awkward, isn't it, transitioning? It can be clunky. You know, um, the world is new in times of transition, isn't it? It presents, the world presents itself as new. The hardships are new. And sometimes we don't know how to live in the midst of those transitions. And so, we're kind of fumbling at it, aren't we? You know, an unhealthy transition can include lots of failure and pain. Bad decisions, usually because of immaturity. Right? Just decisions that you make because you're immature and you don't know any better. You know what I'm talking about? You guys are, when you guys get real quiet like this, <laughs> I think it's because this is, maybe this is resonating with you. Unhealthy transitions can cause you to lose your identity rather than gain it. You know, transitions are about gaining, we'll talk about this in a second, they're about gaining a new identity. That's what a transition is about. But you can lose yourself in a time of transition. You can revert back. You could fail to launch. We'll talk about that too. Transitions can cause us to consider who we really are, but sometimes we can re reject that transition and we can, we can really mess things up. Right? Like that kid who's 21, who should be in college, but is still living like they're in high school, just living in their parents' basement, not knowing what to do with themselves. Right? Sammy, don't cheer about that. <laughs> I'm using that as a I'm using that as a negative point. 
Um, or, or like this. This is maybe, maybe um, more appropriate. Uh, you know, it's like a, a, a new parent. You know, a lot of times, um, especially in the non-Christian world, a, a new male parent, um, you know, the husband will kind of remove himself. Maybe it's because he doesn't know what to do. Maybe it's because he feels in the way. And what he does is he continues in childish behavior and a bad use of his time. And he's not there to help and he's not there to assist. And that's usually the beginning of a failed marriage. Just because a guy can't figure out what it means in this time of transition, what his place is and where he belongs. You know, my wife is paying all this attention to the child. Where do I fit? And you know what? They make bad and immature decisions and they can lose themselves. Instead of gaining a new identity, they could fail. So, so an unhealthy transition can leave us stunted in our gro- growth, just stuck. So transitions can be unhealthy. Why? Because we resist the work of God and struggle to move on from old modes and functions. We struggle to move on from old modes and old functions. You guys are with me? Yeah. Now, what about healthy transitions? What does a healthy transition look like? A healthy transition should look like an unveiling of who you were made to be. An unveiling, a discovery of who God actually made you to be. A healthy transition should cultivate a greater life purpose. Now all of this has to do with Acts, by the way. I hope you're catching that. I'm I'm talking about you, but I want you to recognize that this is very much about what's happening in Acts. Healthy transitions should force the issue of direction. Where you feel like you're in that in-between place, transition should be about pigeonholing you and forcing you in the direction that you should be going. It should help you to launch. And it should become an opportunity for faith and growth. We must learn, for all of these reasons right here, we must learn to enjoy the process of transition. We must learn to embrace it. So many people spend all of their trying, time trying to escape transitionary periods because they're trying. They're difficult. They feel uncomfortable. They can be awkward. You can make bad decisions. There can be pain that comes with it. But here's the deal. We need to learn to enjoy the process of transition. The Acts of the Apostles will teach us how to embrace the hardship and joy of transition. The Acts of the Apostles will help us, uh, will teach us how to embrace the hardship and joy of transition. Transitions should be healthy when we surrender to the work of God and embrace the difficulty of change by knowing that it works a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Transitions should be healthy because just like in Acts, They unlock the program of God in our lives and set in course the greatest adventure one could ever know. And what we're going to see in our story is that these men choose to embrace the difficulty of transition and in so doing, surrendering to God, yielding themselves a living sacrifice, set into a course of motion, motion, A life that absolutely benefits and affects us even today. You are reaping the benefits of men and women who surrendered 2,000 years ago to a time of transition. And that's what God wants to do in our lives as well. 
Luke 9.24 says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. That's who we should be. That's who these people were. And we're going to learn from that. Now, let's talk about an introduction to the letter itself. You ready? This is all just set up. We haven't even done key point number one yet. These don't count. These are, these are like sub points. These are, I refer to these as sub points. Points of prayer. But the key points, they haven't even come. So be ready. Look at Jake and Julia. You have, have you guys met Jake and Julia yet? These guys are right in the front row. Like from week two, they've been right in the front row. Some of you need to see their testimony. All right? And there's no danger of me spitting on you anymore. Because I'm up here. So, all the more reason to... Okay, introduction to Luke. Uh, okay. What we know about Luke, the author of, uh, of, of Acts. Dr. Luke, the physician, is the author. Now, he also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Many of you knew that. Maybe some of you didn't. Okay, so the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, both written by the same dude. Luke is only mentioned by name in Scripture three times. And so there's a lot about Luke that we don't know. Okay? And that's okay. That's how God wanted it. Right? But there's a lot that we don't know. Now, he was likely a Gentile, which is really cool to the story. Okay? It's cool to me that we have one Gentile uh, among the four Gospels. Right? It's really cool to me that Luke was present right there from the very beginning with all those Jews and the, the new Gentile believers mingling in and seeing what that transition looked like. It seems appropriate to me that a Gentile would write Acts. It seems appropriate to me that he would capture this for us. Now, the reason we believe that he was a, that he was a Gentile is because of Colossians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. You can read that. Um, and the way that Paul addresses him leads us to believe that because he's talking about Gentiles there. You can go look at that later. We know he spent time traveling with Paul because the stories in Acts talk about it. He, a lot of times we'll see him referring to, the, to we. The accounts will say, we did this or we did that. And what he's basically saying is, well, I was with them when this happened. I saw this firsthand. And I've listed for you verses uh, where that takes place. Now, in his gospel account, he takes great care and attention to, to, to focusing on Jesus Christ as loving and caring and healing. And he takes that same care in Acts. He takes the approach of a physician. He, he very much writes as someone who is a doctor, who helps people, who cares for people. And we see that both in the gospel and we see that also in Acts. You know, the key verse of, uh, of Luke is chapter 19, verse 10. It says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And I love that about the way that Luke writes. He's focused on the saving power of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see that a lot. Now Luke's record, um, what should we expect? What should we expect from our story? Now, he doesn't emphasize in Acts, he doesn't emphasize a whole lot of little private meetings. Now we see some of them. Uh, right here in the beginning, we're going to see their meeting. Right? They're meeting with Jesus and they're hanging out. But we don't see a lot of these private meetings. Okay, 
um, because he's focused on the Acts. He's focused on the Acts of the Apostles. And so, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but in ministry, there's lots of meetings. There's lots of meetings about meetings in ministry. All right? And the further up you get, the more meetings there are. All right? This Thursday, I think I have three back-to-back meetings. And in some way, all of those meetings affect one another. It's like, it's going to be like having the same meeting three times. Right? Sometimes when I have counseling meetings, I have the same meeting with three people before we can have the meeting together. It's lots of meetings in ministry. And that could be boring, and so Luke leaves a lot of that out. Right? So he doesn't emphasize these little private meetings which were certainly happening, right, among the apostles. You know, he doesn't emphasize a lot on teaching, though we'll see teaching and preaching. I mean, in, in man, we see one of the greatest messages ever preached right away in Acts chapter 2. This phenomenal message that Peter, the Holy Spirit comes, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he sets himself apart as the leader almost immediately, and he just starts preaching. And we see 3,000 people accept Jesus Christ in one message. What? <laughs> you know? Powerful, powerful. And so there's not a whole lot of that, though. All right? Now, what he does emphasize is he focuses on their acts. Now, why? Why does he do that? Because he wants to show us what surrender looks like lived out. Because we are evaluated in heaven based on our acts. Did you know that? Here's here's our key point. Key point number one. The record of our lives will be comprised of the acts we do in Christ's name. Now a lot of you, this makes you uncomfortable coming on the heels of our last retreat, doesn't it? Oh, that sounds like a works-based idea. Um, no, Acts is not a promotion of a work-for-favor perspective. Acts is a book that promotes the biblical perspective that when we are full of faith and surrendered to God, our works will reflect that. Does that make sense to you? 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And for those of you who don't know what that is, when we die, every believer is going to stand before Jesus Christ and give account for the life that they live. Now, all along the way, he's judging you right now for your heart attitude. Sanctification in our lives, living the Christian life, is very much about Jesus Christ judging your heart attitude, trying you, chastening you, rebuking you, correcting you, bringing you into a position where you're yielded completely to him. But when you stand before him, he will have already worked all that stuff out. And guess what he's going to do? He is going to look at the list of your life, and he's going to say, this was wood, hay, stubble, and this was precious jewels. He is going to separate the chaff from what made it through the trying fire of our life, and it will look like the works that you do. And that's not to emphasize works-based salvation or a works-based gaining of God's favor or, or some sort of like progressive salvation. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the yielded individual, the person who's truly surrendered. They perform acts devoted to Jesus Christ. They live doing exploits. 
Not, the, not, not what we do of our own power or authority, but what God does through us as we yield ourselves in obedience. When we stand before Christ, he will measure our works, but not our works that we have conducted or conjured, but the works we were willing to let him act out in us. Not through commitment, but through mortification and surrender. These men lived this way because they were surrendered to Jesus Christ. Are you with me? That's why this is about acts. Okay? Doing things. Now, who was it written to? Theophilus. Yeah, good job. We've got an LFBI student in the front row. Okay. Um, Luke's beneficiary. The recipient of the letter is a man named Theophilus. Okay? Now we know that because verse 1 says so. <laughs> verse 1 says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Now Luke writes the Acts of the Apostles to this man, his friend. Now Theophilus was likely a Roman official who, was, who has already trusted Jesus Christ. Now maybe not. We don't know that for sure, okay? But likely, uh, he's, uh, he knows Jesus Christ, and Luke has written him this letter with the intent that he might grow and develop and maybe preach or teach these accounts, okay? Now listen to me. It says here that the former treatise I have made, which makes a reference directly to the other letter that Luke wrote. So the other letter of the Gospel of Luke was also written to Theophilus. So in many regards, we can see Luke and Acts as two volumes. A letter that was written, two parts to a letter that was written to one man. And so there's a progression here. We see the story just flow right into one another. We see the Gospel of Luke flows right into Acts. It's beautiful that way. It's a follow-up. It's a follow-up letter. Uh, and we, we know that Luke chapter 1, verse 1, for as much as uh, many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou, uh, thou hast been instructed. All right? And so he's writing these letters to Theophilus with the intent that he would embolden his faith and teach him to believe. Make sense? You ready to get into it? Any questions? I don't usually ask that. Okay. Let's get it. Let's start in verse 1 again. Here's our introduction to Acts. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until that day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Okay, now listen. In his, in his three and a half years of ministry, Jesus Christ discipled 12 men. Right? We're familiar with that, right? And a multitude more of followers, more peripheral disciples were following 
Jesus Christ and they were learning from him. He reached out to them. He taught them salvation. He, he, he taught them what it meant to believe on him as the Savior. He taught them the truths of Scripture, unlocking them. And the previous letter of Luke left us with the resurrected Christ spending time with his disciples. The very end of Luke, Luke chapter 24, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and now he's with his disciples and he's teaching them. And during this time, the disciples are in a resting pattern. They're in a resting pattern where, where they are receiving from Christ, knowing that there is, there's a coming work to be done. He's preparing them. And this is why Jesus focused this time on preparing them. He's had something to teach them. There was something that they, he wanted them to do. There were acts that were, be, were to be done. There was things that he wanted to preach. And so he took this time and devoted 40 days to preparing them for that work. The same way, listen, he took three and a half years, three and a half years to disciple them. He's taking 40 days now to prepare them for the coming work. All right, now what was he doing? What was it that he was teaching them? First of all, he gave them commandments. He gave them commandments. It says, After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Now if we jump back to Luke chapter 24, the previous letter, we can see the things that Jesus was teaching the disciples after his resurrection. Game time, folks. You ready? Okay, so what was it he was teaching them? Luke 24, verse, verses 44 through 48. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. In those three and a half years, these are the things that I taught you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Okay, now listen. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. and said, So there's more to be taught. You understand? He's saying, look, in the first three and a half years, what I, what I was trying to do was teach you that everything that came before me, all of the Old Testament, was pointing to me and my first coming. And I spent that time re- revealing to you what it meant for the Messiah to have come. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to unlock for you your future potential. He said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Beginning at Jerusalem. Okay, so what is he saying? Oh, look at verse 48. And ye are witnesses of these things. And ye are witnesses. Christ was teaching that they were responsible for preaching the repentance and remission of sins among all nations. Key point number two. We personally must recognize our purpose is to preach forgiveness. That's the message. He tells them to go and preach repentance and remission of sins. Now, does he, we're going to come back to this. Does he say baptize people in, in, in repentance and remission of sins? No. Okay. He, he teaches them here to go and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ for the repentance and the remission of sins. We must recognize personally that our purpose is to preach forgiveness. That's the point of being a disciple. Are you with me? Two, 
proving his power to them. He spent this time not just teaching them what their purpose was, okay? But he spends time proving to them his power. Okay, now, when he died, listen to me, when he died, when Jesus died, the disciples were shocked. You remember that about the story? They lose their freaking minds, okay? It's like everything that they've been told. Look, I'm gonna, he says, I'm, he tells them, I'm going to raise again three days later. And their whole world is falling apart. And they don't know what to do with themselves. Some of them are hiding away. Some of them are doing different things. Or, you know, we see, some of, we see some of the disciples go pick up their fishing nets and go back to work. Isn't that disappointing? How boring is that? It's been three and a half years, right? This dude Peter walked on water. You know what I mean? And he's going to go back to fishing as his full-time job? I think it, things change after that. You know what I mean? Um, but, but they don't know what to do with themselves. And when he arrived and revealed himself, they were shocked. Many of them literally couldn't believe that it was him. There's this great story in Luke um, about a couple of the disciples go and they travel. They're, 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 Jesus hasn't revealed himself yet. And they're going on this walk um, to a place called Emmaus, a village. And while they're walking, they're really sad. And they're talking. And Jesus starts walking with them. And he's, and he's like, what are you guys so upset about? And, Jesus, and they start telling Jesus about Jesus. <laughs> like, we'll follow this guy. And he was the savior of the world, the Messiah. And we thought he was going to be king. But then they killed him. And we don't know. And they're like all extra sad. Okay? And he's walking with them. And he's like, you guys, like literally, says, you guys are idiots. <laughs> right? He calls them foolish. And they start breaking bread together. And he reveals himself to them. And their eyes are open. And they recognize, see, this is how sad they are. They can't, when Jesus is with them, they can't even believe that it's him. This is the state of these men. <clears throat> so Jesus spends this 40 days with them, showing them, revealing to them who he truly is. That he is the Jesus of the resurrection. He shows them and reveals to them the scars, right? He breaks bread with them. He sits down. He has a meal. He shows, look, I'm a physical body. I'm resurrected. This is my resurrected body. And he breaks bread with them. And he spends time with them. And he does all these miracles, now these proofs to them, to show them who he is. And he spends 40 days doing that. Well, why? Why? Why does he do that? Because he wants them to recognize the present reality of the resurrected Christ. And that's our key point. We must, as disciples of Jesus Christ, if we are going to live a surrendered life. We must recognize the present reality of the resurrected Christ. Jesus Christ is just as resurrected today, 2,000 years removed from this narrative, than he was there. He's there proving himself to them. All right, You know what our proof is of Jesus Christ? His completed word and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the body of believers that are a testament to who he is. And we must recognize the present reality of, of Jesus Christ, that he is resurrected in our lives. We have to. Because if we don't, 
we will fail to preach the good news of it. What do we have to offer if we don't believe in the present reality of a resurrected Christ? You know, the problem is a lot of you guys live defeated lives because the present reality of, of Christ is not true for you. You walk around, you mope all the time, you're disappointed because you can't have the relationship that you want, things don't look, your life doesn't look the way you want it to be. And that's an issue of you believing that Jesus Christ is resurrected and, and that he's victorious in your life and that he set you free from the bondage of this world. So you don't have to get, up, get all caught up in all the, the emotional realities or all the temporal realities or all the materialistic realities, right? Or all the social realities or all the political realities of your life. There's only one reality that matters. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He's defeated death. The grave has no more power over me. And I've got about 70 years of life to live for him. And I must live in that power, in that present reality. Every day should begin with us waking up and acknowledging that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Every single day. Because if you don't recognize that, you will live a defeated life. What else did he teach? Well, he spoke to them about their spiritual reality. He spoke to them about their spiritual reality. He focused his attention on this topic of the kingdom of God. All right, now the kingdom of God shows up. That phrase shows up 69 times in the New Testament. And the kingdom of heaven shows up 32 times. We see these these two phrases used a lot. And I'm not going to expound a lot of time on this. You take D2 and you'll learn all about this. Okay, but listen to me. There is a difference, and I want to point this out. The kingdom of God is a reference to the spiritual presence of God in the lives of his believers. That's a note that you should take down. It's a note that you should take down. When we see the words, the phrase kingdom of God, he is referring to either the present reality of Jesus Christ among his disciples, his physical presence and his dwelling with his disciples, or the reality of his Holy Spirit left with us on earth and his spirit dwelling with us. The kingdom of God is always about a spiritual reality. Now the kingdom of heaven is always about God's future and promised kingdom. About a physical place that he's promised for us. Right? It was the thing that the disciples, what they were really looking for was the kingdom of heaven. Right? And if you read with this perspective, you begin to understand they were looking for Messiah to reign as king on earth and to put down the Roman government and to set all things right. That's what they were looking for. And it made them miss the reality of kingdom of God. Now here's the thing, guys. Most translations, in fact, I think every English translation, reduces this concept down to one phrase or the other. And so what they'll do is they'll combine the two. And they won't differentiate. And it ruins the context. Listen to me. I'm telling you this. It ruins the context of the entire New Testament. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know if you're talking about the kingdom of heaven as a future physical place that God has promised to the Israelites or if you're talking about God with us in, in his physical presence or through his Holy Spirit. It confuses things. And we have to know what the word of God says in its specificity or we can get really confused. So why is he spending this time talking about the kingdom of God? Why is he doing this? 40 days he's teaching them about what it means 
to live in a spiritual reality, the presence of God with them. He's teaching them uh, what it means to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, listen to me. He's about to make a promise to them. We're not going to get into it. All right? But he's going to tell them, look, hey, I need you guys to wait. And in just a few days, I'm going to disappear, but in just a few days, my spirit is going to come to you. And, and you know the crazy thing about this? Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as being better for them than his physical presence. Isn't that crazy? That Jesus tells them, look, it is, it's good that I go and leave you with the comforter. It's better for you. But you know what? They, they, they have a real hard time believing that. And we're going to even see them kick against that a little bit here in the story. They're going to be like, well, when are you coming back? Like, we want you here. We want you here. And he's trying to show them by teaching them about the kingdom of God. Is look, I'm present with you in my spirit. And you will do more things through the power of the Holy Spirit than I did when I was here on earth. See, before we can have the Acts of the Apostles, we have to have the present reality of the resurrected Jesus Christ and the presence of His Holy Spirit, the spiritual reality. We have to have that. Or there is no Acts of the Apostles. You understand, if He doesn't spend the 40 days teaching them these things, there is no Acts of the Apostles. Key point, we must recognize the authority and the power of Christ in us. That is the kingdom of God, the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. We must recognize the authority and power of Christ in us. So this is going to be how I close. We didn't get very far, right? but that's okay. I think we laid a basic groundwork. Did anybody learn anything new today? Just show of hands, just so I know that I'm, okay, awesome, praise God. This is, this is the prayer request. As the praise routine, uh, team comes up, we're going we're gonna to give an invitation. And here's the request, and here's the thing that you should be praying. God, is there anything that I have not learned? <coughs> is there something in me that I don't understand as it, concerns, as it concerns your command for me to preach? Have I failed you? If there's if, if any way I've neglected the reality of the resurrected Jesus Christ in my life, would you reveal that to me, God? Would you show me if I'm living defeated or if I'm living victorious? Because some days I just live defeated. God, so often I live in terms of temporal things, and, and I'm not living in a spiritual reality. God, would you reveal to me that your spirit lives inside me? And it gives me the power and the authority that Jesus Christ had. It gives me the ability to live a victorious life day to day. Because listen to me, if something is amiss as it concerns those three things that Christ taught his disciples and is teaching us, then we need to get those things right if we're going to live the way that the, the apostles lived. If we're going to go as sent ones into the world, and we're going to impact this world for the sake of the gospel, those three things, it has to be a reality test. And some of us need a perspective change. You understand? So let's pray. If you need someone to pray with, grab them. And let's go to God. And let's work through these things. We need Christ. We're going to live the way the apostles did.
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this time. <coughs> thank you for your word. We thank you for 